Today on the Matt Walsh Show, Amy Coney Barrett's neighbor has some great advice for the protesters who showed up at her house. We'll talk about that. Also, the pro-life organization whose office was burned and defaced now reveals the hateful messages that leftists have been leaving since the attack. And a self-professed queer surgeon defends his practice of chopping the breasts off of teenage girls. Plus, the plus CPS shows up uh, after parents enter their six-year-old into a marathon. Apparently, you can't run a marathon with your six-year-old, but you can change his gender, I guess, in our country. And our daily cancellation, a popular Twitch streamer nearly burns down her house live on camera while trying to cook a steak. Maybe it's time they start teaching basic life skills in school again. Just a thought. We'll talk about all that and more today on The Matt Walsh Show. Before we get to this show, I just want to remind you that today is the day, folks. Tickets are on sale, and now's your chance to join me and the Daily Wire crew for Backstage Live on June 29th at the historic Ryman Auditorium in downtown Nashville, Tennessee. Come sit, listen, and marvel at uh, me, Ben Shapiro, Michael Knowles, Andrew Clavin, and Daily Wire God King Jeremy Boring for our biggest live event of the year. Uh, tickets are available now, so don't miss out. Head over to dailywire.com slash Ryman and get your tickets now before they're gone. I want to have a big uh, enormous representation of the Sweet Baby Gang there, especially. So make sure you go and get those tickets. Daily Wire backstage live at the Ryman in Nashville on June 29th. When the pro-abortion radicals descended on Justice Kavanaugh's house last week, they had the support. In fact, they were led by one of Kavanaugh's own neighbor, neighbors, a woman named Lacey Wooten Holway, who uh, organized a demonstration against her own neighbor, inviting the militants into her neighborhood and uh, inflicting them on not just Kavanaugh, but the whole community. Predictably, she was motivated by personal grievance, it turns out. She apparently um, has an abortion of her own in her past. Certainly no surprise that she's willing to turn on her neighbor, given that she was willing to kill her own child. Loyalty is not her strong suit. Holway also has a non-binary, quote-unquote, 12-year-old who uses they-them pronouns. In other words, she fulfills every cliche of a privileged leftist, middle-aged white woman that you can imagine. I don't know this for certain, but we can assume that she also has uh, multiple pets and refers to herself as a dog mom. But the situation was a bit different when the baby killer crew made their way this week to Amy Coney Barrett's house, decked out in their handmaid's tail costumes. Um, her neighbors seemed to be considerably less enthused by their presence. In fact, one of them spoke out on camera. Now, he didn't give any impassioned speech or anything like that. He gave no indications of where he stands ideologically one way or another. Instead, he responded as a normal, just common sense kind of guy. And he said something off the cuff that was quite, I think, important and profound and worth reflecting on. But first, let's listen. So, sir, you're a neighbor of uh, the justices, or of Justice Amy Coney Barrett, correct? I am. And how do you feel about the protesters coming to your neighborhood? It's none of their business. Why are they here? Do you think it's inappropriate for them to protest in front of the house? Of course it is. Do they have the right to protest, or should they be going yeah, somewhere else? they have else? the right to protest, but not in front of someone's house. Mm -hmm. They live here. This is where she lives. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So, would you do you have anything to say to the protesters? Just what I just said. They shouldn't be doing this. Go home and get a family. What I like about uh, the clip is that the guy could easily be a Democrat, for all we know. In fact, given the location, there's a high statistical likelihood of exactly that. But... He's approaching the situation with exactly the kind of casual, everyday common sense that's sorely missing from our culture. At least that common sense is not often very visible. Um, and then his statement at the end, go home and get a family. Indeed. Now, granted, many of these women have aborted their children and thereby literally killed their families. Also, getting a family, if you're going to do it the right way and the best way, requires that you first get a spouse. 
But the sorts of people who show up at a pro-abortion rally are not fit to have spouses in their current state. It's hard for me to recommend that those women go and get husbands when I certainly would not recommend that any man go and marry any of those women. And uh, as much as I advocate for people to have families, the fact is that having a family will not solve all your problems, and it certainly won't make automatically make you a better person. It's not going to have the effect automatically of making you a better, better person. Um, probably won't make you a worse person, but if you're a bad person already and you remain a bad person once you have a family, then your badness will suddenly be doing much more damage than it did when you were single. So now there will be people subjected to your badness every day, children molded in an environment infected by it. Now, I haven't known anyone who became more selfish when they had kids, but I have known plenty of selfish people who had kids and remained selfish, and now their selfishness is doing immeasurable harm on a whole new scale and at an entirely different level. Um, These are all the caveats to keep in mind before we endorse the idea that people should go home and get families. But these are individual caveats, anecdotal concerns. As a general societal prescription, it is certainly the case that we would be better off culturally if more people went home and got families. It's well established that our society is drifting away from the institution of the family. Perhaps, you know, even drifting isn't exactly the right word. It's more like we're in a rip current being pulled furiously out to sea away from the family. People are having fewer kids. More people are having no kids at all. Uh, More are foregoing marriage entirely. Unmarried cohabitation is trending up. Marriage is trending down. We're all familiar with a lot of these statistics. The average age of marriage for men now is 30 years old, approaching 31. And for women, it's almost 29. Now, less than a century ago, it was 24 for men and 21 for women. But as mentioned, lots of Gen Zers and millennials have no interest in matrimony at all, viewing the sacrament as old-fashioned, out-of-date, oppressive, patriarchal, et cetera, and so forth. Now, there is a little bit of a chicken or egg question here. Have we slipped into decadence and collapse because of our abandonment of the family, or have we abandoned the family because of the decadence and collapse? I think the answer is the latter, the former, and both at the same time. These two things feed off of each other, kind of a mutually parasitic relationship. How can we solve this by focusing on and strengthening and reigniting the institution of the family? What advantage is there in going home and getting families? Well, there are many advantages. For one thing, your family is an anchor. Gives you a fixed point of reference. It gives you a purpose, motivation, a reason to work and sacrifice and endure. At the very beginning of Cormac McCarthy's excellent post-apocalyptic book, The Road, the protagonist, who's never given a name, says of his son, with whom he's traversing the desolate wasteland that was once America, He says, all I know is that the child is my warrant, and if he is not the word of God, then God never spoke. It's a little bit obscure, but I take this to mean that the child is his mission, his ward, his reason for persevering, his vocation given to him by God. And that's what you find in your family, if you have the right heart about it, and if you're willing to listen and understand to the word of God as he's speaking to you. Your family gives you something to care about beyond yourself. It gives you a potential escape hatch from the vicious cycle of constant, shallow self-involvement. Again, not automatic. You have to be willing to grow in that kind of way to put in the effort, but the opportunity is there. Another thing about family is that it anchors you not just in the present, but it also gives you a stake in the future. And this is something that's really missing from lots of people's lives, and it shows. 
We don't care a lot about legacy anymore. We don't care about the future. We tear down statues in this country. We don't put them up. But legacy is something that you find in the family and something you probably aren't going to find if you sacrifice family on the altar of professional achievement, which is what people are told to do these days, especially women. After all, someone else, after you leave your job, will take the office that you were sitting in. They'll take the position that you had. You're probably not going to be missed very much. The work you did likely will not be remembered for very long or at all. You'll just be replaced and nothing will be lost. But nobody can replace a loving and devoted father or mother. The work you do in your family, in service to your spouse and your children, rings down the generations, remembered either with fondness or disdain. And it's there in that vocation where you can find a happiness that surpasses whatever fleeting pleasure may be brought by a pay raise or a bigger house or a nice vacation or whatever else you give your life to if you decide not to give it to a family. So yes, I think the advice is very good. Go home and get a family. Not the solution to all of our society's problems, but it puts us in the right direction, points us towards the answer. Now let's get to our five headlines. You know, with everything uh, going on right now, the news about Roe v. Wade, it's really impossible to avoid the abortion debate, uh, which means that you need to be prepared for it. You may think uh, this means the fight is coming to an end, by the way, with Roe v. Wade ending, but abortion legislation returning to the states means the real battle is just beginning, actually. There's no group in America then better positioned than 40 Days for Life to help fight this battle. 40 Days for Life has one million volunteers throughout the country holding peaceful vigils outside abortion facilities. You may be surprised to hear that their largest presence is actually in the country's bluest state, um, especially California is their biggest state of all. Their vigils have closed many abortion facilities in America, and uh, nearly half of those facilities were in liberal states where abortions will continue to remain legal after the fall of Roe. From San Francisco to Chicago to Seattle, hardly pro-life areas, volunteers have guided abortion workers to have a change of heart and quit their jobs. Just wonderful and important work they're doing. So as this issue gets out, of D.C. finally, 40 Days for Life is effectively changing hearts and minds in the grassroots of the pro-abortion movement. Check out their locations, podcasts, and their new book, What to Say When, the complete new guide to discussing abortion at 40daysforlife.com. So we heard uh, earlier in the week about the pro-life organization in Wisconsin that was attacked by a Molotov cocktail, and it was uh, defaced, and... um, and all the rest of it. And that, by the way, not the only example of this. These, these, these have, this has been happening across the country um, by the pro-abortion terrorists. Well, the website Human Events has obtained audio of uh, messages that were left after this attack and after this, this organization. You know, they were in the headlines because of this. And pro-abortion activists have been calling this place and leaving messages and they have not been leaving supportive messages. They haven't been calling to say, oh, I'm so sorry this happened to you. We disagree, but I, you know, I certainly don't think anyone should have their buildings burned or Molotov cocktails thrown at them. That's not what they're saying. Um, their message is uh, quite a bit different than that. Let's just play. This goes on for a while. We're not going to play the entire thing, but just to get a kind of a taste of it, let's play a little bit of this. Here it is. Hi, I'm calling because I read about the fire in your building. And I'm calling because I'm curious if it was arson or rather the good Lord showing you an example of hell and where you belong for being such a misogynistic bitch. Thanks for uh, 
basically going out there daily and making sure that women can't have control over their own bodies. And I'm so thankful that the good Lord finally took action on people like you. You're going to burn as well. You're all going to burn. You f***ing think you're following the will of f***ing Jesus? You're following the f***ing devil, actually. You're just evil little f***ing people trying to control other people's lives. And next time that f***ing bolt off, I hope it f***ing doesn't f***ing miss. I hope you all burn with it. That's what you deserve. <laughs> yeah, you must be a pretty perverted group if that's all you got to do all day long is think about people's sex organs. Leave your f***ing beliefs out of the government. You got no rights to be priding into other people's private family matters. Get the f*** out and keep your f***ing to yourself, you idiots. We sick of you f***ing evangelical pieces of Go to hell. That's where you're going anyway, Yeah, just learn about you ignorant, simple, sick, waste of scum because of the fire. And whoever said that fire is a true American patriot. You people are just utter filth of the planet. And it's too bad your whore mothers didn't abort each and every last one of you. Hopefully you all get cancer or suffer months and are dead before the end of the year for the betterment of all of humanity. Good. So I think we got the the point there. Very, uh, very eloquent. Very eloquent from those pro-abortion people. Uh, evangelicals. Probably my favorite part of that is the guy who said, hey, you, you damn evangelicals. Um, and he also, he also tells them to keep their beliefs out of the government. They're not the government. This is just a, this is a, a group. This is a, a private organization. Keep your opinions to yourself. Well, what? They can't say, well, you're not keeping your opinion to yourself. They're not even allowed to have their opinions, I guess. And keep in mind, again, that these were messages that were left because this group's building was set on fire and vandalized and defaced. Now, just imagine the shoe on the other foot here. Imagine that it was a pro-abortion organization that was physically attacked in some way. And then there were a bunch of messages from pro-lifers saying all that kind of stuff. Now, that wouldn't happen. And we know that it wouldn't happen. It would never happen because if it did, we'd hear all about it. But that's just not how pro-lifers don't, that's not how pro-lifers operate. Um, but this is how they do. It, it's, there, there are a few things about that that are kind of interesting when I listen to it. The, the first is how, how, how often they make reference to the devil and kind of religion. Now, these are anti, anti-God, anti-religion, you know, secular people. And yet, how often do they bring, as, 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 in fact, this is a common theme we've talked about quite a bit over the last couple of weeks, how often do pro-abortion people even though on one hand they appear or claim to hate religion and they always accuse us of imposing our religion on others, how often do they bring religion into the conversation? Religious ideas, religious symbolism, religious references. Um, very similar. You know, it, it, it very much reminds me of uh, the passage in the Gospels, the uh, temptation of Christ in the desert and his encounter with Satan. And what is... Satan do. He quotes scripture at Jesus, trying to make his own point, quoting scripture, of course, taking it out of context, just like the left does. 
uh, very much modeling themselves after their father in hell. But you listen to that, you just think, like, how, how much longer can we actually continue to live together as one country? When you've got people like, this is how they feel about you. And I wish that I could say that this is, that's just fringe, it's, it's rare, it's, you know, these are the fringe radicals. It's not all that uncommon or all that rare. Every time somebody complains, and uh, it's always somebody on the left, because any other complaint like this, it wouldn't get an airing by the mass media. But anytime somebody on the left is, uh, you know, in the headlines claiming that they're getting death threats or whatever, what I always say, I always say, well, that's, that's common. We all, I get death threats all the time. And it is very common, but also, should it be? And what does that say about us as a country and our, and our potential the potential of our union going forward. These are these are people like you. They disagree with you, and so it's not just they disagree. They want you to die. They're happy when when you are the victim of violence. They want you to die and burn forever in hell. That's what they want you to get cancer and die. That's how they feel about you. Can we continue to live united in 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 that kind of environment? When you've got two sides, really it's more than two sides because each side is fractured itself into a bunch of different pieces. But generally speaking, two sides don't like each other, don't respect each other, and worse. It's just, to, you know, to even re- refer to, to say that we're united at all, is, it's, a, it's a joke at this point. It's like some kind of parody of unity. This is not what unity is. Well, at least we're all united as Americans. Are we? In what way? Around what? They want us to be dead. They want us to get cancer and die and burn in hell. So that's, we're united? It's just, it's not sustainable. And at a certain point, we, gotta, we have to actually start talking about this. There are a few people who will talk about, like, let's get really serious about the future of our union as a country. Does it have a future? What does that look like? We need to seriously start talking about that because this is just not a sustainable situation. All right. Um, Maisie Hirono's a senator, and, and like every Democrat, you know, she's hesitant, of course, to explain her own position on abortion. And she appeared, this is somewhat surprising. So she's on CNN and the anchor on CNN is actually trying to get an answer out of her, which is pretty uncommon. And you can tell she's taken aback because got to feel for her a little bit. She's not expecting that. These are her people. She's on CNN. She's not expecting that they're going to ask her any real questions or insist on an answer, but he kind of does here and um, she's not willing to give it. Let's listen. So is this um, a bill to preserve access as it is today with Roe in place being the law of the land, or is is the goal of the bill to expand it? The bottom line is this is a bill that is going to enable the woman 
to make the decision. And so we can have all kinds of arguments getting into the weeds about this, that, or the other thing, but uh, the fact of the matter is that the radical right-wing justices put on the court by the Republicans, particularly the last three justices, have decided that they're just going to overturn almost 50 years of a constitutional right. That is the bottom line, that we, through this bill, is restoring that ability of women to make the decision, not government. But, Senator, it's not getting into the weeds on this thing or the other. It's it's what the legislation is. It's what is guaranteed by it. Uh, as you may have heard in the previous uh, report, and you probably know uh, from Senator Susan Collins and, and Lisa Murkowski. Yeah, it's uh, just getting Senator, this bill that you're advocating for, you supported, uh, what does it do exactly? Well, I don't want to get into the weeds. Well, it's, that's so we're not going to start talking about this and that and it, what's, it's the bill that you support. What does it do exactly? What is, what's the point of it? Doesn't even want to tell you that. It doesn't even want to, even, even broad strokes. Now, we know quite famously that um, politicians in D.C. Are, are often pushing for legislation that they haven't read, that they don't want, they don't want to get into the specifics of it and all that kind of stuff. But with this, this is like just, okay, can you give us a couple sentences on what this bill does? We, we don't even need, need to get into all the specifics, as much as that would be nice also. But give me a couple sentences. Like, what's the point of the legislation? What does it do? Doesn't even want to tell you that. Because what the legislation would do, and what she doesn't want to say, is that it would legalize abortion nationwide through every stage of preg- pregnancy for any reason everywhere. So I can explain, does, you don't have to get into weeds. It doesn't take a long time to explain. You can explain it in one sentence, and that's what it does. And she doesn't want to admit that. And when you have one-sided discussion that is always reluctant to simply state their case and be honest about what they want, and then you've got the other side that has no problem talking about what they want, is very eager to have the conversation. Like, that should tell you something. Meanwhile, um, over at the Biden administration, Joe Biden yesterday had a couple of moments um, that I think we need to need to watch. Here he is. I, I think it's, it, this is best without a lot of context. And, and as always with Biden, it's hard to give context to what he's saying anyway. But here he is screaming about, I think, food shortages. It's not exactly clear, but he's very upset about something. And uh, let's listen to that. You remember the long line to stand to elevate people to line up all kinds of vehicles just to get a box of food in the restaurant. How could you forget? People were hurting. And what is it that my crowd wanted to do? Forget it. Forget it. God, this is the United States of America. The idea. That people would have to wait in line an hour, an hour and a half to get a box of food when they're drunk. It's unbelievable. It's, uh, what can you do but laugh? It's not, even, it's not funny. I mean, this guy, he's just wandering around the stage screaming, and no one knows what he's talking about. What, what, ex- what are we talking about? I, you're, I mean, food shortages, yeah, those, those are happening, but who are you yelling at? You're the president. The idea that people can't get food. Yeah, right. You're in charge. You're the guy. The MAGA crowd. 
The MAGA crowd is saying, hey, wouldn't it be nice if we had enough formula to give babies so they don't starve to death? I think that's what the MAGA crowd is. That's not just MAGA crowd. It's just like what everyone is saying. Every normal people think that it'd be nice if there was enough food for babies in this country. That it is, uh, it is, words escape me to describe. It's beyond an outrage, beyond uh, an absurdity that we live in, an, in, a, in what's supposed to be the greatest country in the world and we're running out of food for our babies? A totally avoidable situation? In fact, I don't have the clip, but there was uh, someone else in the Biden administration today was, was asked about this, and he, he said that, well, we've known about this. We knew about the problem, and we were prepared. For, so you knew about it? Oh, we knew about this months ago. knew back, of, back in February, they say. Well, what did you do about it? Because I already gave an example of one solution. It would have been pretty easy, especially if they knew that this situation was approaching, that it was coming. Which is to get the FDA the hell out of the way, because that's all they do. That's all the FDA does is they stand in the way and they put red tape in, in place and regulations and all these onerous things to make everything more difficult and to constantly justify their own jobs. That's the only reason most of these bureaucracies exist. They exist for their own sake. They're like self-perpetuating. They just exist to grow larger. They're, they're cancerous tumors on our country, are these bureaucracies, especially the FDA. And when we get to a point where they're actually needed, like, okay, here's something you guys could do. Here's a, you, you do almost nothing all the time except, except just try to justify your own existence and your own paycheck. You don't do anything to help Americans. Well, here's a situation where you could actually help and they're nowhere to be found. They're, they're giving cable news interviews and say, oh yeah, we're on it. We're working on it. Yeah, they could have approved more of these European uh, baby formula brands for sale in America because in Europe, they're not having this problem. They got plenty of baby formula to go around. And in other countries as well. So we start importing some of those rather than making it illegal for people to buy those kinds of formulas. But oh, no, we can't. We can't allow you to feed your baby until we at the FDA have, uh, you know, we, we, we have to approve each and every one. We have to take a look. You need to give us, yeah, your baby's hungry and wants to eat, but uh, we need seven to eight months to really take a look at this and run through all the tests and do all this, you know, and everything, get everybody involved and all the sign-offs at every level and all the paperwork. Your baby can wait seven or eight months to eat, right? And then we have uh, Joe Biden. Here's his message as we go into the midterms. Here's a, a little message, another great message of hope from Joe Biden. Listen to this. This pandemic isn't over. Today, we mark a tragic milestone here in the United States. One million COVID deaths. One million empty chairs around the family dinner table. The pandemic isn't over. So this is their message as we head into the midterms. This is, we have come a, a long way from Biden's boss at the time, and who still is his boss, Barack Obama, getting elected on a message of hope and change. We've come a long way from that. We've come a long way from hope. Now it's, the pandemic isn't over. And, food, and screaming about food shortages. My God. 
Um, okay, I want to play this for you. Someone who goes by the handle Queer Surgeon on TikTok and who chops the breasts off of minor girls for a living is uh, speaking out now in his own defense. And by the way, he's quite proud of what he does and, and is not embarrassed or ashamed at all. And um, here he is justifying himself. So I'm here to clarify and speak some truths about what's happening with gender affirming care in adolescence. Um, most of the bills that are going through right now aim to limit this care for people under the age of 18. And there's this false narrative that a lot of teenagers are having gender affirming surgery. Most of the teenagers that are having surgery are getting chest surgery. And most of that is happening before 18 because these individuals didn't have access to early enough medical treatment. So using surgery as sort of this false narrative to attack gender affirming care as a whole is not correct. The truth is that by limiting access to medical care with some of these bills, you're actually going to cause more people to need gender affirming surgical care. So the real headline there is that we've got this guy, the queer surgeon, quote unquote, admitting that most of the, uh, the ch- quote, chest surgeries, which is, uh, which really is mutilation, they're just chopping the breasts off of physically healthy girls, most of it is happening to minor girls before the age of 18. And there's, and he even admits there's a lot of it happening. But tries to draw, draw some sort of distinction between um, gender-affirm, quote-unquote, gender-affirming surgery and this. He said, oh, there's this false narrative that there's all kinds of this surgeries happening to kids. Oh, it's mostly just the top surgeries. Yeah, that's, that's you're, you're, you're chopping body parts off of children. A lot of them. This is currently happening in the United States of America. 14-year-old girls are being brought in and having their body parts removed. And for all the talk of the backlash, the much-needed and deserved backlash against this kind of thing, I mean, these people are still, they're not worried. They're out in public talking about it. And of course, everything he says is just completely false. The, the only honest thing we heard there is that there's a lot of this happening, and it's mostly happening to minor girls. He's right about that. Everything else is total nonsense, starting with the, uh, with the claim that this is medical care. This is not medical care. You know, if you're chopping off a body part, th- there are times when chopping off a body part is medical care. You know, there are times when limbs and parts of the body have to be removed. Double mastectomy because of uh, for for a cancer patient. Okay, that's medical care. Somebody has their leg horribly mangled, and you have to take the leg off. That's medical care. But when you are removing physically healthy body parts from a physically healthy person, that is not medical care. That is mutilation by definition. And he also makes this claim that oh, this is only happening because these girls are not given uh, the, the, the medical care they need earlier in life. And if they got that quote-unquote medical care, then uh, we wouldn't have all these surgeries. Total nonsense. Not only because it's not actually medical care that he's talking about, but also because like, what is he referring to? What he's saying is that, well, these girls... Um, who I guess he would say are boys, even though they have breasts that need to be, that he thinks need, need quote unquote, to be chopped off. But if they were given uh, like hormone blockers and hormone pills and stuff like that, 
then then we wouldn't be, you know, and, and not enough of these kids are being given the drugs early enough in life. So for him, the solution is to drug more kids and to drug them earlier in life. But he damn well knows that all the drugs do and all they're really meant to do is put the kids on the path to surgical mutilation. I mean, the drugs are not going to stop a girl from growing breasts permanently. In fact, they're the ones who always say that it's temporary. Oh, puberty blockers are temporary. That's what they always claim. And reversible. The reversible part is also not true. That's a lie. So there are just so many. Every time these people speak, they speak for 45 seconds, and there are so many lies that you, you, it's, you know, it's overwhelming. It's, it's hard to even know where to begin in, in sifting through all this. But they themselves say it's a, it's, a te- it's a temporary thing. Okay, so you're giving the puberty blockers temporary, even though even from the temporary use of the puberty blockers, there's now going to be lifelong effects. But then you take them off the puberty blockers, now what? Well, the next step is to put them in for surgery. That's why this guy who makes a lot of money chopping the breasts off of girls, that's why he wants more girls on the drugs and wants them on drugs earlier. Because that creates the factory conveyor belt um, of girls who are going to eventually make their way over to him. Because most of the kids who are put on these drugs they end up seeing. They end up. They end up going the whole way. They're now in the system. They're on the drugs. They're on the conveyor belt, and then not all that far down the line, you get to the uh, butcher with the scalpel, and he's sitting there with his pockets open, waiting to uh, you know make some more money off of it. I also wanted. This is kind of related. Um, in a way that might not be immediately obvious, but uh, or maybe it is. It's from the Daily Wire. The report says. A six-year-old Kentucky boy who ran in a Cincinnati marathon was visited by Child Protective Services, his parents said this week. Cammie and Ben Crawford, whose son, Rainier, uh, ran in the Flying Pig Marathon in Cincinnati with his entire family, was visited by CPS at the family's home in Kentucky, according to an Instagram post made by the family on Monday. Quote, on Friday, social workers came to our house and interviewed our children because leaders in the running community are calling running with children wrong. It then shows a picture of Rainier seated at a table outside the family's home, supposedly speaking with one of the CPS workers. This needs to stop, the Crawfords wrote in the caption. Our children are having emotional breakdowns, not from running, but from a mob that has been weaponized by running's most accomplished and celebrated individuals. They're stating that children running is abusive and not providing any data or facts. The reports and stance are false. Hundreds of witnesses, including police officers, and hours of video footage corroborate. When will you apologize and retract? Uh, and then it gives a little bit of context here. It says, as controversy erupted around the family, Olympic long-distance runner Kara Goucher seemingly condemned the parents for allowing their son to run in a 26.2-mile race. Uh, Goucher wrote on May 4th, I don't know who needs to hear this, but a six-year-old cannot fathom what a marathon will do to them physically. Let's stop there for a second. A six-year-old cannot fathom what a marathon will do to them physically. A six-year-old does not understand what embracing misery is. A six-year-old who is struggling physically does not realize they have the right to stop and should. And that was someone, that was so that was one person, I guess, as well known in the running community, is what we're calling it, I guess, um, who said this. And there were others who thought that it was abusive to have the kid in the, in the marathon. And then uh, reportedly, apparently, uh, CPS shows up to check on the kid. Okay, now, 
as for putting your six-year-old in a marathon, um, I would agree that that's not the right approach. Like, I, I would agree that, that six-year-olds are too young to be running 26.2 miles, even if they want to. And of course, they're going to want to. I mean, any, um, any boy, when it comes to anything, any kind of physical exercise, any, anything like that, if he sees you doing, especially if he sees his dad doing, he's going to want to do it too. So I, I certainly believe that a six-year-old would want to run a marathon. But yeah, I, I, I would say you're, you're too young at that age. And it's, it's just, it's too much exercise. For, for a kid that age, you're, you know, the, the potential damage to your muscles, to your bones, it's pretty high risk. I mean, really for anyone to run in a marathon is a high risk proposition physically. And uh, you got to really know what you're doing and be highly prepared to undertake something like that. But as the Post pointed out, six-year-old can't really know what they're getting themselves into or what the potential um, long-term side effects could be. I mean, how this could mess up your knees down the line and all that kind of stuff. So, I agree, shouldn't have a kid in a, in a marathon. Um, does that mean that CPS should be showing up at your house about that? Absolutely not. Like, there are, there are kids who are being subjected to real severe abuse in this country who uh, could use a visit from CPS. And having your kid take part in, a, in an activity with you, an exercise, like, that doesn't fit the bill, even if I think it's not the right thing to do. Um, and yet, I can't help but think, you know, CPS, they're showing up at the house because the six-year-old is not old enough to run a marathon. And yet, we've got plenty of six-year-olds in this country who are choosing their own genders. CPS not showing up for that. And even, again, go back to what uh, this Goucher person said. Six-year-old can't fathom what the marathon will do to them physically. Six-year-old doesn't understand what they're doing. Six-year-old doesn't realize they have the right to stop. Hmm. Yeah, sounds exactly like the situation that six-year-olds are in when they're put onto the path of gender transition. Cannot fathom what that's going to do to them physically. Young kids, when they're put on hormones, cannot fathom what that's going to do to them physically. Don't understand what they're doing. And really importantly here, they don't realize that they have the right to stop and that they should stop. Just like Goucher says of the kid in the marathon. Well, it's a different kind of hellish, lifelong marathon that you're putting a kid on when you put them on on this gender transition path. And there are a whole lot of kids, like once they're in it and they're being identified, boy identifying as a girl, and they're on that path, and they think that uh, they can't, they're, they're on the, the uh, conveyor belt, they think that they can't jump off. They think it's too late to jump off, they're going to disappoint people, and they got to just go with it. And you can listen to plenty of detransitioners who are now older and adults, and that's exactly what they'll tell you. Especially the ones who started when they were kids. They were never comfortable with it, they never really understood what they were doing, and they never really felt like they could stop. That's what's happening in America now, is uh, if you have your kid do too much exercise, you know, then CPS will show up. But if you, if they were to, have, instead of having the, the young boy in a marathon, if they were to dress him up like a girl and put him on the path to drugs and um, genital mutilation, yeah, no problem. 
If anything, CPS would show up, knock on the door, and uh, award them a, a ribbon, a medal. Forget about CPS showing up. You're going to have you know, Time Magazine, the Today Show. They're going to be there wanting to do a profile on your courage and on your what a courageous, brave family you are. Completely upside down and uh, backwards, as always. Let's get now to the comment section. Who's bringing shopping cards back to the rightful place? We're becoming saints here in the sweet baby gang. Scott says the ash-breasted tit tyrant is a species of bird in the family Tyranidae. It is found in Bolivia and Peru. Its natural habitat is habitat is subtropical or tropical. Uh, it is threatened by habitat loss. Well, thanks for ruining the joke, Scott. And I don't believe anyway that the ash-breasted tit tyrant is threatened by extinction because, like I said, there's going to be whole flocks of them tomorrow in DC for in DC for the women's march. So I just don't I don't buy it. Rachel says it's true. I thought my friend was joking with me when he said he got sent home from work because of a turtle. So apparently, if you find one desert tortoise, the entire construction site must be shut down. So many stories like this that I've heard. A lot of them in the comment section, too. Um, you know, We know people are getting arrested for violating the Endangered Species Act. But as I said yesterday, this people in the construction, especially in certain regions of the country, uh, people in the construction business know all about this. Because entire projects shut down. Not even because the project might kill an endangered species, but just because it may inconvenience or irritate or uh, qualify as harassment of an, an endangered species. Uh, E432 says, vote if you don't want to see Matt do any type of dance. Have compassion and let him back out. Thank you for that, E432. This, look, here's, what, here's the solution here. Now, I know I mentioned in, in my fit of insanity, I mentioned that I would do the interpretive dance. Uh, it, when I, when we get to a million subscribers and I did say that, and you know that I would never back out of a promise, but if, you know, I'm going to give you in the audience and in the sweet baby gang, I'm going to give you a chance to think about this. And if you decide that you don't want me to do this, then I will respect your wishes. So it's not me pulling out. Okay. It's not me backing out of a promise, but if you decide that you want to have compassion and be good people and tell me, never mind, you don't have to do this, then I will, let in, I, will, I will give you an opportunity to tell me that. And I'll respect your wishes in that case. So just, just decide. Do you want to be good, decent people and say, never mind, Matt, don't do the interpretive dance? Or do you want to be horrible people and force me into it? It's up to you. It's totally up to you. Um, let's see. Ross says, two observations. When I flew for the Marines in San Diego, we were forbidden to land in large areas of one of the gigantic bases due to the endangered fairy shrimp. Not joking. Uh, and two, the bald eagle is a symbol of our freedom, so that dude got jailed for killing one, but countless people go unpunished for burning the literal symbol of our freedom, the American flag. Makes total sense. That's a really good point also. Um, that the whole reason, and you could say, well, uh, Bald eagle is a living thing and a, and a flag isn't. Yeah, but a, a bald eagle, is, it's a bird. And it's perfectly, there are all kinds of birds that you're allowed to kill. Perfectly legal. Um, but when you're not allowed to kill the bald eagle, even though it's not endangered. And the, the only reason is because of its symbolic significance. Well, if we're protecting things because of their symbolic significance, then why would that not extend 
to the flag, which is the actual symbol of our country? Very good question. Jake says, Matt, I appreciate your take on the baby formula shortage and agree that it's a big problem, but I feel you're missing an opportunity to advocate for breastfeeding and make clear that it's the best thing for mom slash baby. The switch to formula has been part and parcel with the feminist takeover of the family. Uh, I just don't agree with you. Um, I don't think that uh, formula has anything to do with feminism at all, first of all. Uh, I think formula is a wonderful thing. It's that there are babies who are alive today and would not be because of formula. Uh, there are babies, as we said, in the past who would have starved to death or, or been victims of, of malnutrition because they weren't able to breastfeed for, for any variety of reasons. And, uh, but you know, now that we have formula, so we don't, that's, if the formula is available on the shelves, you don't have to worry about that. So I don't agree with you there. And I don't think that the breastfeeding versus formula decision is some kind of, you know, morally loaded, super important situation. I think it's, it's hard enough to be a parent. And I want to be an advocate for becoming a parent and starting a family, like we talked about at the beginning of the show. I think it's a wonderful thing. Um, but you just make it harder on people in unnecessary ways. It's difficult enough to be a parent. Modern society introduces enough additional challenges. But then on top of that, you just like every little choice you make as a parent gets picked apart and, you know, p- debated and, you know, anything at all. Like and people, parents know this. If you, you, you can think you might want to share something about your family or about something that you did online just because you think it's a nice, fun thing. And so you say, oh, this is what we did today. And people will just start picking it apart. You'll have the mom brigade come in and the the dad brigade, and they're going to be picking it apart. Oh, you shouldn't be doing that, and that's a bad choice. This would be better as a parent. So every little decision you make as a parent becomes this uh, hotly debated, controversial thing. And I just think that a lot of that is unnecessary. I mean, there are really important decisions you'll make as a parent. Uh, There are morally loaded decisions that you'll make as a parent. I don't think breastfeeding versus formula is one of them. Here, Here would be my recommendation. And I think this this applies to a lot of parenting situations. Not all of them, but many of them. Figure out what works for you and your family and and do that. And and the baby, honestly, is going to be fine either way. And as long as you're caring for them and loving the child, when it comes to feeding the child, make sure they get the, you know, as long as they're getting the right nutrients that they need, figure out what works for you, what you're able to do, and just do that. Really simple. That's, That's my advice. It's the most infamous Supreme Court case in memory and the deadliest decision in history. But even 50 years after Roe v. Wade, few know the truth behind the landmark decision, a decision that's enabled the destruction of over 64 million babies since 1971. Well, The Daily Wire has taken a wrecking ball to the 40, rather the four big lies the abortion industry was built upon with our original documentary, Choosing Death, The Legacy of Roe. And there are, there are probably 40 lies or a lot more, but the four big ones are uncovered in this uh, documentary. And especially we get into the history of where, how this came to pass and uh, why it needs to pass away finally. You'll hear the facts and stories the abortion regime has suppressed for generations and get a clear-eyed view at the brutal reality they desperately don't want you to see. Some of this content is hard to take in, but a few subjects, if any, are more important than this. You'll see what I mean when you watch the trailer. Here it is. Um, many times when we did this, as we started, uh, patients would begin crying and 
protesting. But once we had begun dilating the cervix and passing instruments into the uterus, it was too late to stop. I was handing hush money to women who we had left pieces of their baby. We had put these women's lives in jeopardy. We had put their lives at risk, and we were literally giving them a check for $800. And for a poor woman, $800 is a lot of money. I mean, there have been so many moments in the last decade plus of going undercover in abortion clinics myself and seeing just heartbreaking things. Women vomiting in the hallway of an abortion clinic, crying out in pain. The late-term abortionist talking casually about how they would literally leave a born alive baby to die. Or if you deliver the baby in the toilet, then you pick it up and stuff it in a plastic bag and bring it to us. Babies are being born alive and the backs of their necks are being slit. They are being drowned. Um, their necks are being snapped. It's, it's happening more often than people want to think about. These abortion facilities, these abortion providers, these doctors, they don't care about these women. And you're just, you're realizing, you're watching in front of your own eyes play out America's greatest horror story, which is how we butcher children in the name of choice. So please help us expose the truth. Tell your friends to watch. And if you're not already, become a Daily Wire member and tune in today to watch our documentary on abortion. You don't want to miss it. Choosing Death, the Legacy of Roe. Go to dailywire.com choosing and join the fight today. Now let's get to our daily cancellation. Today we cancel Kelly Curran, who is a popular personality on the platform Twitch, where people usually go to watch other people play video games, but apparently some Twitch streamers will um, simply go about their mundane, everyday lives and broadcast all of it, and fans will sit and watch. It's a bit like the Truman Show, except in this case, the stars of the show are aware that they're on camera, and also a lot of time they have none of the charm or personality of Jim Carrey's character in that film. And that brings us to streamer Kelly, who was live streaming while cooking a few days ago. And there's nothing immediately strange about watching somebody cook. I've, I've been known to enjoy a cooking show or two in my time. But usually you watch somebody cook because they're a master chef and you're watching in order to learn their techniques. Or else they're an amateur chef and you're watching to see Gordon Ramsay verbally abuse them for overcooking the salmon or whatever. What I don't quite understand is watching someone cook alone in their kitchen when they apparently aren't even familiar with the rudimentary basics of cooking. Now, I'm speaking somewhat rhetorically here. I, I do actually understand why people sit and watch live streams where the star of the show has nothing interesting to say and isn't doing anything worth watching. It's the same thing that drives the screen addiction that most people in this country suffer from, which is loneliness, despair, lack of meaning in life. People turn to the internet for companionship, having given up on real physical relationships and on physical existence in general. 
Well, that's a topic for another time. The point today is this particular Twitch streamer, Kelly Curran, who um, was broadcasting live while cooking, attempting to cook, rather, a steak. And then things went sideways in a hurry. Let's just watch this as this unfolds here. So she's got the, it's, it's smoking all over the place. She's got the steak, probably way overcooked it. She doesn't turn the burner off. Now there's the fire. Whipping the pan around the room, spread the fire everywhere. Oh, God. I don't know what to do, guys. I don't know what to well, do. Turn the stove off, first of all. Turn the stove off. The stove's still on. Help! 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 Now she's Help. just shouting out the, Help. Out the door. I don't know what Help. to do, you guys. Turn guys, the stove off. First thing you do. Man, it's frustrating. Especially as a dad, you know. That, that's, that's tough to watch. Okay. So she almost burned down her house. As it happens, apparently the fire department showed up in time and they, she escaped without any major property damage or personal injury, thank God. But it could have been much worse, seeing as how she did literally everything wrong as soon as the overheated pan she was using to vaporize that poor steak erupted into flames. So let's go through the missteps one by one, okay? I think this will be very helpful. In fact, I might save some lives right here today on The Matt Walsh Show. So first, um, she blows on the flame, which of course only makes the problem worse. It's like when you're starting a, a campfire and you want to get it going and you've got the, uh, the embers and so you start blowing on it because you want to make the fire get bigger. That's why you, you don't do that with a kitchen fire. Blowing only puts out a fire when the fire is contained on the wick of a birthday candle. If the flame is much bigger than that, you fuel the fire by giving it more air. So, then she whips the pan around, which, by the way, is giving it more air, okay, because she's whipping it around. And then she puts it in her sink where she attempts and thankfully fails to pour water on it. Because if she had succeeded in dousing her grease fire with water, she would have caused a massive fireball to erupt out of her sink and likely set her cabinets aflame. And also probably her hair and, and everything else. Um, and then she whips the pan back around, spraying hot flaming oil all over the kitchen like some kind of fiery sprinkler and sets it back on the stove without turning the burner off. Then she leaves the flame and the, the stove that's still on and just starts randomly shouting help out her front door. It's a master class in what not to do when you have a grease fire in your kitchen. So here's what you should do for the record. First, remove the pan from its heat source. Okay, that's the first thing you do. Turn off the heat source. Your next step is to smother the flame. Don't blow on it. Don't dump water on it. Don't dump gasoline or lighter fluid. Smother it. If the fire is small enough, you could probably take care of the problem by just putting the lid on the pan, which originally she probably could have done that. Before she blew on it, she probably could just put the lid on it, and that would have been good enough. It's a bigger fire than you'll need to smother it by dumping either baking soda or salt on it. Just make sure it's baking soda, not baking powder, or else you'll be in for an unfortunate surprise. Um, if you don't have either of those things handy, or if the fire is already too large to contain that way, then use your fire extinguisher. And if you don't have a fire extinguisher, then hopefully you have a fire blanket. If you don't have a fire blanket and you can't smother it with a lid and you don't have baking soda or salt or the fire is too big by this point to put it out that way, then just toss yourself into the fire as penance for being so woefully unprepared. Now, actually, your last resort in that situation is to get out of the house and call 911. So you didn't think you'd get fire safety tips on the Matt Walsh Show today, but that's where the conversation took us. And all this leads me to a deeper point that I think needs to be made here. The comedy of errors that we just witnessed is a very small microcosm of a much bigger problem afflicting our society. A huge number of Americans do not possess even the most basic life skills, like how to put out a kitchen fire, 
how to cook in the first place so that you hopefully you don't have fires. Um, food safety, first aid, housekeeping, money management, budgeting, how to do your taxes, how to change a tire, car repair, home repair. The list goes on. All of us are deficient in, almost all of us are deficient in some of those areas. Many of us are deficient in all of them. And the reason, in large part, is that these sorts of things are not being taught in schools anymore. Now, obviously, parents should be training their children in these skills. But 50 million kids in this country spend most of their waking hours through most of their formative years in school buildings. And that would be, in theory, the perfect place to impart a lot of this kind of knowledge. And there was a time when lots of these things were covered in school. They even had a whole subject, home economics it was called, and they were that subject was devoted to everyday life skills like these. But those courses started falling by the wayside in part because it was considered too retrograde and unfeminist to teach kids, especially girls, how to cook and clean. And also in part because public school curriculum started to revolve more and more around standardized testing and college readiness. Like the focus now is to make kids ready for college, not for life. And in part because the schools needed to make room in the day to teach about LGBT pride and CRT and other forms of insidious nonsense. The end result is that kids whittle away hundreds of hours in these alleged educational facilities and come away from it with almost no practical or useful knowledge or skills at all. Next thing you know, they're they're live streaming while burning down their kitchen. You teach these skills in school. And again, it would be great if parents taught it, but it's also a self-perpetuating problem because the parents, we have a whole generation of of parents who don't know these skills either because they didn't learn them. Teach the skills in, 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 in school. Isn't that an interesting concept? To actually give kids useful knowledge that will make their lives better and easier? Make them more self-sufficient? Who would have thought? And that's why, on second thought, uh, maybe I'm not going to cancel Kelly Koran. Instead, I think it's our utterly useless education system that must be, once again today, canceled. And that'll do it for us today. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. Have a great weekend. Talk to you on Monday. Godspeed. Well, if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review. Also, tell your friends to subscribe as well. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts, we're there. Also, be sure to check out the other Daily Wire podcasts, including The Ben Shapiro Show, Michael Knowles Show, The Andrew Clavin Show. Thanks for listening. The Matt Wall Show is produced by Sean Hampton, executive producer Jeremy Boring. Our supervising producer is Mathis Glover, production manager Pavel Vodowski. Our associate producer is McKenna Waters. The show is edited by Robbie Dantzler. Our audio is mixed by Mike Cormina. And hair and makeup is done by Cherokee Hart. The Matt Wall Show is a Daily Wire production. Copyright Daily Wire 2022. Hey, everybody. This is Andrew Claven, host of The Andrew Claven Show. You know, some people are depressed because the republic is collapsing, the end of days is approaching, and the moon's turned to blood. But on The Andrew Claven Show, that's where the fun just gets started. So come on over to The Andrew Claven Show and laugh your way through the fall of the republic with me, Andrew Claven.